So Genesis 40. And we're actually going to do 40 and 41 today. And you'll see why at first glance you would think that this is all about dreams, but it's, it's really not all about dreams. There's a lot of dreams that happen in it. But as you will notice, this is the only time that Joseph ever interprets a dream. And actually, Joseph isn't the one that interprets the dream. It's God that interprets the dream. And we will see through everything that Joseph shares another example of how we should live, not only as disciples, but also as those who have received gifts from God, spiritual gifts and spiritual blessings, recognizing at all times where those come from and who they belong to and who they are to serve. The other thing we'll see is a model of suffering. A model of suffering for God. And how Joseph endures that suffering even though he did nothing wrong. And he endures it for God's glory. And in this instance specifically, God chooses to, um, to lift him up out of his situation. And in some ways, that's a picture of our situation as well. As we suffer this time on earth, in heaven we live as God's glorified sons and daughters. So pay attention to his attitude as a slave. Pay attention to how he uses his spiritual gifts. And pay attention to how he suffers. Remember, he was 17 when he went in to slavery, and he's going to be 30 when he comes out. So that's a little period of time. Genesis 40. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. The same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. So Potiphar is no longer named here. I want to pause for a second. Potiphar is no longer named here. It's talking about the captain of the guard and in the house of the captain of the guard. But Potiphar is not named anymore. Some people speculate that he's still in Potiphar's house and all that kind of stuff. That's really not relative or important to what we're talking about here. So his intera- Potiphar is no longer named. His interactions with Joseph... And the attitude of his alleged crime are not recorded. So Potiphar, how Potiphar feels about Joseph, whether he was innocent or guilty, all that's completely irrelevant because it's not recorded here. The cupbearer here is an advisor to the king. He's like the prime minister of Egypt. He's at the king's right hand. He's the, like one of the highest ranking officials under Pharaoh. All right, so let's continue. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the, of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night. And each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered. But there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. 
Joseph is saying that only God can interpret dreams. That power and that gift is only his. Only he knows. And so he prefaces what he does with that. Verse 9, the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me. And on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. The Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. This is Joseph's first cry for help. So far, out of everything that's been recorded, there's like not a peep out of him until now. Which I actually find kind of ironic because for somebody who trusts God so much and puts all the power of those giftings and his life in the control of God, I find it interesting that it's at this instance when he has this powerful guy in front of him um, to say, hey, please save me. You know, we don't have a recording of Joseph calling out to God or crying out to God, Lord, please save me from from this situation, from this place. Um, So... It would really just be speculation, to, uh, but the timing of Joseph's release was perfect, and his long-suffering served the purpose God had for him. Joseph was suffering for God, for his glory, and the good he had prepared in advance for him to do. So the fact that he calls out in this, in this time frame, I, I don't think we can fault him too much. Um, but as we look at Joseph's character overall and the relationship that he has with God— um, Well, we'll see. He's going to endure suffering for two more years. But I don't think the fact that he asks Pharaoh's official to release him is the reason that he spends two more years in prison. That's what I was getting at. Verse 16. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had been given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Joseph, or for for Pharaoh, excuse me. But the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. So some translations will also translate this as saying, he's going to lift off your head and hang you from a tree. That's not terribly important here. I just wanted to make that distinction. Um, So we can see here that the baker is probably pretty sorry that he asked for his dream to be interpreted. He's not so happy anymore. Or his hope isn't really... (laughs) Yeah. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday. And he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. So it's kind of interesting. It's, it's kind of setting up as, as Pharaoh's in front of everybody. And he says, here are my two trusted officials. And he restores 
the cupbearer, and he says, here's my trusted official, who actually turns out to be a traitor, essentially. He lifted up the heads of, his, of the chief cupbearer cup and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that once again, that he once again put the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Which serves, like, we look at the timing of we think what we think is a huge mistake, but, but God is even in control of these thoughts that come to the chief cupbearer. He's not reminded at this time. It takes two years before the cupbearer is reminded. When the two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile, and when, I, when out of the river came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. Kind of a scary dream, I would say. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind, the thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled. So he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. I want to pause this. I didn't really add this to my sermon, but we don't put a lot of weight on dreams. And I think that's just fine. But it's interesting to think about how um, Middle Eastern culture thought about dreams and how dreams play a part in the rest of scripture. So Muslims, for instance, think that God can't speak directly to them, but they do believe that God can speak to them through dreams. And you'll actually, if you do some research, you'll find that there are quite a few Muslims who actually, their testimony is they had a dream about Christ and that's how they became Christians. That's how they became believers is through their dreams of God communicating with them. It's quite interesting. But I just want to note that all your dreams are not meaningful, just like everything that's written down isn't meaningful, or everything that is said has a special or divine meaning from God. So in the same way, our dreams are the same way. As a matter of fact, when I knew I was going to be preaching through this, I've had lots of nightmares this week. <laughs> all about different sorts of things. And I used to be troubled over and over um, when I was a little bit younger, uh, I used to have constantly have dreams of sin, that in my, in my dream I had some kind of grievous sin and then had to live with that, that, uh, that pain of that sin. It's interesting in my dreams how there wasn't uh, some kind of repentance, there was no grace, there was no mercy in my dreams. It was just this captured... Uh, me captured by some kind of crazy sin. And then when I woke up in the morning, I felt the heaviness, heaviness of that guilt, of that sin I haven't, hadn't even committed. So it's quite obvious where that dream came from. It was not of God. It was actually an, a spiritual attack of the enemy is really what it was. Um, but anyway, that to say, there's some other um, important ones to look at 
in terms of dreams being interpreted in the Bible. Um, as we look through Genesis, we've seen God communicate to his people through dreams so far. But also in the future, we'll see uh, in Scripture in Daniel, where Daniel's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and nobody can interpret it. And he calls all the magicians, all the wise guy, all the <laughs> spiritual dudes come to him. And he says, I want you to interpret my dream. And, and they go, all right, well, tell, tell us what your dream is. And he goes, no. I want to know that you can interpret my dream. And the only way that I know that you can interpret my dream is if you tell me what my dream is. So if you can tell me what my dream is first, then I'll know that you can interpret it. And they go, well, uh, tell us your dream. And he goes, no, I'm not going to tell you my dream. You guys are all faking the bacon right now. And if you don't tell me what my dream is, I'm going to kill all of you because you're not who you say you're all. You're all frauds. You're all fakes. You're all false prophets. And so as that process goes about, that, that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to gather up all the wise men to kill them, Daniel gets word about, about uh, this dream to be interpreted. And he knows that he can't interpret the dream either. He knows that he can't know uh, the mind of Nebuchadnezzar. But there is one person who does know the mind of Nebuchadnezzar. And so he prays to God. He prays to God. You know, give me this dream. Give me this dream or I'm going to die. Only you know his mind. And God grants his request and gives him the dream. And not only does he give him the dream, but he also gives him the interpretation to the dream. And so I think that's important as we, as we look at this. Um, not only in terms of the value of dreams and that not all dreams are uh, beneficial, just like not all dreams are, uh, excuse me, not everything said is from God. Um, so we need to make that distinction and that discerning in, in what happens. And also to make note that this is the only time in Genesis when Joseph actually interprets a dream. He has dreams previously when he's with his brothers and he says, Hey, I had this dream that we had all these sheaves of grain and yours bowed down to me. But he doesn't say, Hey, this is what it meant. His brothers and his father had interpreted that dream as being that they would be in submission to him. So I find that quite interesting. And so Daniel's attitude in how he uses those spiritual gifts and his reliance on God to provide those things is actually the same uh, in the way that Joseph does that, his dream interpreting here as well. The chief, so in the morning, his mind was troubled. So he set out for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one can interpret them. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today, I'm reminded of my shortcomings. <laughs> Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream at the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, each, giving each man the interpretation of his dreams. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to, them to us. And I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Joseph, or so Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one could interpret it. But I have heard it said that you... I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And this is the key verse that you should highlight and remember. 
Verse 16, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So God is giving all the glory, all the power, all of it to God. Recognizing his weakness, recognizing his place, that God is God and he is not. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I have never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate him, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. <laughs> then I woke up. In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain. It's obvious that was a nightmare, by the way. <laughs> In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years. And so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what, is he, what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow. Then all the abundance of Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows is so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. So this is a, this is a warning, right? It's interesting how Joseph is talking to the king of Egypt. He interprets his dream and then takes the initiative to suggest a plan of action to the king of Egypt. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land and to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used when the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man in whom is the spirit of God? See, even these ungodly people recognize the Holy Spirit working through Joseph. And because Joseph trusts God, Pharaoh and all of Egypt is going to trust Joseph. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one discerning, no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. That is his symbol of authority. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. His signet ring is his signature. Right? Every time he puts a stamp on something, that's, that's Pharaoh's signature. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonath, Penea, and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. The name given to, uh, to Joseph probably means God speaks and he lives. Because to Pharaoh, who had this dream and this great distress, right, God gave him an answer. Makes sense. Once again, we see the people of Egypt, though, not worshiping God themselves, but they see Joseph as some kind of intercessor for them. They trust Joseph because Joseph trusts God. It would have been awesome for the people of Egypt to actually turn and to worship, uh, worship God, but that doesn't end up being the case. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. Each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh, and you should remember that name from now on, and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Have you guys noticed throughout with all the kids that are born, when they name their kids, it's really often that they name them after the relationship they have with God or the situation that God has put them in or how they feel relationally to God. And so from the way that that Joseph names his kids, we see God's thankfulness. We see God recognizing the blessing that throughout all the suffering that he could see the good that God was doing. And today, he doesn't see any trouble. He doesn't see any of the hardship that he faced in in the past. He only sees the blessing that God has given him. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began just as Joseph had said. There was a famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe throughout Egypt, and the whole world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. It's really interesting, and I'm kind of jumping ahead to the next chapter, but we will see that through this, Egypt comes to take control of all of that land. 
So all the land that was privately owned, the farmers have to sell their land to the country or to the pharaoh to be able to buy food to survive. So that property that pharaoh had, which was small as the king, he was, he was lord over all that area, but the property that he owned was relatively small in comparison. Now he not only owns the people, but also all their land and everything that they possess. And everything and everybody in Egypt now belongs to Pharaoh and is under Joseph's control. So you can see the symbol of authority that Joseph been, has been raised to. And why, if it's that severe that you're going to sell the family farm just to survive, it's pretty severe, right? And that is why we will see... Uh, Jacob's family, Joseph's brothers, come from Israel, which is relatively far away, come down to try to buy food in Egypt. But let's talk about Joseph. Here we see a man suffering for doing good. And in the midst of his suffering, he is doing what? He's glorifying God. Faithfully serving him in whatever situation he's put in, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And when God restores him to a greater position, he is thankful to the point of saying that he has forgot all his trouble and that God has changed his suffering into good. Joseph is saying it was all worth it. Being sold into slavery, being accused of something he didn't do, all of that, all of that terrible stuff, he's saying it was all worth it to suffer. So suffering is the big one. That's the big thing to take away from this. Suffering, it's for God's glory and purpose. And this is the big boy stuff. This is the stuff that takes some, sp some spiritual maturity to absorb and to understand and to apply. Because we get put in situations and our first natural fleshly reaction is to do the poor as me. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't love me. I'm, I feel abandoned. I'm in the worst situation of my life. But it takes a spiritual maturity to understand the character and the nature and the goodness of God to understand that that's not what he has planned for us. That even if we're undergoing physical pain and suffering and hardship and all of those things, God actually has a greater plan that he's going to make come to fruition. Maybe we won't have that in this life, but we have that guarantee, that reservation, that seal promising eternal glory for us. <clears throat> so we know it takes spiritual maturity to understand that suffering is for God's purpose, that God makes nothing go to waste, no hardship, no loss, no pain. He turns our helplessness into trust in him, and he proves himself capable and strong and good and trustworthy. His plans are for his glory and for our good. Not in our timing, but in his. For his eternal purposes and our eternal good. We suffer in lots of different ways. We suffer in persecution. We suffer in our struggle against sin. And we struggle even as we slowly die in our bodies. But all of it is for our good. Because once our bodies die away, then what do we have? Eternal glory with him, right? the new bodies that he has created for us. This is what it means when Paul says that God makes all things work together for the good of those who love him. Romans 8 is probably one of my favorite chapters. Instead of reading the whole thing now, that's for later. And yes, I know that I've assigned it many times before. 
But there's a reason that it's my favorite, and there's a reason to revisit it. Romans 8, 17 through 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And 8, 26 through 30. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he searches the hearts. He searches our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The image of his son, what, what did Jesus have to go through? Suffering. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say then in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How did he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that wasn't all of Romans 8, but it was a big portion of it. I kind of lied that I wasn't going to share very much. But I just can't share that in the entirety of context because it's the same thing that brought me to Christ. It's the same thing that gave me assurance. God allowing me to go through all of the suffering that I, that I went through in my life. And then when seeing the blessing and how much he loved me and that he poured out on my life, he created a thankfulness and a peace and just a trust in him that I didn't have before. At the end of Hebrews, it speaks about suffering for Christ, so, uh, quoting Psalm 118. What can mere mortals do to me? 2 Corinthians four sixteen through 18 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though we outwardly are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and Momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Can I read that again? <laughs> for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. Our suffering has a purpose. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 
the blessings, the glory that God has prepared for us, we can't see it yet. We see small pictures, small glimpses of it. But it's worth it, just like Joseph said. Colossians 3, 22 through 25. It's not something that you often apply to yourself, but you should. It's in reference to slaves and masters. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do, in everything, and do it. Not only when their eyes are on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, working as for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. We see a small reflection of our earthly lives and the promise of our heavenly one in the history of Joseph. From the pit to inheriting it all, While we are suffering here a little while, we are called to serve God and trust him. And we rely on him to fulfill his promises, that we are co-heirs with Christ, that a blessing and a goodness awaits us. So for now, we are to trust his promises, to pick up our cross. And to pick up our cross, by the way, we kind of throw that around. I'm going to pick up my cross and follow Christ. That means prepare for and endure the suffering that is planned for us. It's not an accident. But endure and prepare for the suffering plan for us. Suffering that serves our good and affirms our belonging to Jesus. Romans 8, 17 said, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So without suffering, we don't belong But God says we belong. And because he says we belong, he's going to sanctify us. He's going to let us endure discipline. Let us endure suffering. Let us endure hardship. And make all of that focus our hearts on him. And make all of that work for our good and for his glory. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, suffered beyond what any of us will probably ever know. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 10. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If you choose to follow Christ, you will suffer. And as you suffer for him, God will continue to sanctify you, making you holy as he has declared you holy. So count the cost of following Christ and make the eternal decision on where you stand. Jesus has already died and rose again to give you hope and confidence that a life lived trusting him to save you will guide you. That your life will be secured in him and in heaven. And give you assurance that no sin, no man, no government, no circumstance, and no mistake can tear you from God's grip on your soul. So trust him with the life that he has given you, because the life he has given you belongs not to you, like the interpretation. It belongs to him.
So I think it goes without saying that all spiritual gifts and all blessing that God has given us doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him for the goodness of his people and for his glory. So never forget that as you use what God has given you to love others. I'm going to finish up with 1 Peter 4, 10 through 19. Listen closely because it talks about our spiritual gifts. And then right afterwards, it talks about our suffering. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though it was something strange was happening to you. Recognize the symptoms, right? But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the suffering of Christ, that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do Let's pray. Give us that recognition, Lord, that our sufferings won't be fruitless, that our hope is not in vain, that the glory and the blessing that you have in store, Lord, is all worth it. Father, we're blind. We can't see what you see. So, Lord, lead us by the hand through all this suffering, Lord. Keep us safe and secure in you, Lord. Give us the hope and the security that we have, Lord. Encourage us. Challenge us, Lord. Humble us so that all we have left is you, Lord. Because once the only thing that we have left is you, then we have everything. So take us there, Lord. Take us there and bring us out. Take us into the desert, Lord, and lead us into the promised land. Father, we know we need it, and we know we need you. We praise you in your son Jesus' name. Amen.